Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Good morning. Hello from Idaho. You're a sister state. Kinda, not, maybe. <laughs> uh, how many of you have been to Idaho before? What do you know about Idaho? Don't say that. <clears throat> yeah, there's a lot of things you could say, I guess. Um, but I've been in Idaho for 30 years, just about. Next year will be my 30th year of ministering in Idaho. I'm not a native Idahoan. I moved to Idaho in 1994, where we took our first ministry. Um, my wife and I were married six months. We came out west. I was raised, well, I was born in Mississippi, uh, raised in Indiana, lived a year in New Jersey, College of Wisconsin, grad school South Carolina, and then went west. And went west because in that vertical Bible belt, uh, as God saved me, <clears throat> and I considered what God wanted for our ministry and wanted us to do. I wanted to go to a place that I felt like had more of a need for gospel preaching churches. So that's what drew us out west. Uh, you are in the southern west, we're in the northern west, and it's been a blessing to minister these many years. I just want to say this morning as a testimony, praise God for God's goodness that is present every day and, and able to be experienced by all of God's children every day. He is continually kind and good to us. And I, I, to give you some indicator as to what to expect in preaching and in the trust that you should have, uh, our church has uh, sent a couple from our church to make sure that I do the right thing. Right here in the third row back are Monty and Janine Level. Uh, Monty is a traveling evangelist. He's not just in the Northwest, but largely in the West, and a co-laborer and partner in the ministry is one of our deacons, and I suspect here to make sure I don't blow it. <laughs> no, but he's a great friend, he and his wife. I'm, I'm thankful to have them here. I'm glad to know many of you. I'm glad to have been able to minister with some of you. There are some that are here that we've had some ministry exposure uh, to for some time, some that have partnered very intimately with our ministry. And I believe that our church and your church are sister churches. And not only do we share the bond of Christ uh, with each other, but we share the attitude of worship together. And I hope this morning, I know that uh, there's a lot of things going on in your life. Uh, one thing I know for sure, that when there's a college attached to a church ministry, you're busy. <laughs> and uh, I know in that busyness, you can have a lot going on in your hearts and minds. But I hope that this morning we can agree to come together to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And I, I have to tell you, one of the blessings that I get to do as a preacher is share the blessed truths of the Word of God that don't just help people, and I'm going to be really selfish about it, have helped me. And what I want to do this morning is I really want to help God's people live in the victory that God has given but to live in that victory recognizes the fact that we do live in an antagonistic world towards Jesus. We live in a world that there is a spiritual battle going on. The doctrine of the Bible is pretty clear on that fact. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning, and 
Uh, and with respect to you this morning and hopefully asking you to give some grace to what you're going to hear this morning, um, we are going to be sharing, I'm going to be sharing with you what our church has been going through for some months. Uh, if you were to ask our people, they would say, I think you mean years. Uh, but we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We've been in 2 Corinthians for quite a while. And we have been walking through verse by verse verses 1 through 6. I'm going to give this to you. The title of the message this morning is The Battle of the Mind. And while I give this to you in these first six verses, we're going to largely target verse 5. And uh, we'll try to unpack that together. And I believe that God's Word is powerful, it's living, and it's able to meet you where you are. And I believe you need it. And I know I need it, and I know that God is good and will help you. I'm going to, it's just a habit I do uh, at our own church, if you don't mind. It helps to quiet my heart, focus me as well. Can we pray together? And uh, we'll get into the Word. Father, thank you for the blessing of who you are, the greatness of your character and person, the kindness of your grace, the benevolence of your mercy to reach us and to give an opportunity to invite us in to the family of God through your Son. Thank you that the hope of the gospel is open and available to all, that there is someone here that doesn't know you, that you would invite them here to come and know you today. For believers, your children, thank you that you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us, that you've promised to work in our lives to bear fruit. Thank you that you're patient. Thank you that your enduring love is consistently there. And in our failures and in our wanderings, you're continually through your spirit that indwells the believer, drawing us into fellowship with you. So, Lord, I pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would focus our minds, that you would give us a purposeful time of worship where we surrender ourselves to the majesty and glory of who you are that would bring us to an application of obedience, a, a heartfelt rejoicing over the truth of your word. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your kindness to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Reading 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through verse 6, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you, and you begin to see Paul's heart, which is really there in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, this, this heart of entreaty, and it's the same heart I want to give to you this morning. As deficient as I am as a preacher, I want you to hear that begging to receive these truths to yourself. I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. <clears throat> now, Quickly, as a matter of backstory, Paul is dealing with people that are trying to undermine the Word of God that he is sharing. It's not just a personal battle. The personal battle with the preacher is he's the one that's sharing the message, but the intent of the battle with the messenger is to demean the message. And that's what Paul is dealing with. And in the Corinthian church, there were those that would say that Paul is not a good speaker that Paul was not an attractive uh, personality, either in stature or in disposition, uh, and even adding to it, 
the idea of maligning his character that he was in it, the ministry, for selfish means. So nothing like trying to do the right thing and then have people reinterpret it under selfish disposition. So this is the kind of attack he's dealing with. And he says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And he appropriately acknowledges the attack against his person is more than against his person. It's against the Word, and it is a spiritual war. So in verse 4, he says, I'm not going to play the game with you. I'm not going to fight like you fight. I'm not going to lay out credentials of, of, of why I'm more important and why, and, the, and we know there are passages where Paul says, if I wanted to play the fool and I wanted to argue, that means I could do so. But I'm not going to fight carnally. I want to fight biblically. I want to stand in this war biblically. And I think it's a good segue into the truth that we're going to be in the battle of your mind is that the, the world around you is trying to battle for your mind and trying to do all it can to demean the authority of the Word of God in your life and in your mind. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought bringing to the obedience of Christ, every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Verse 6, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We won't really get into verse 6 too much, but I will say the target end of all this thing, uh, of all this doctrine here, is how you live your life in a world that's at war with Christ and the doctrine of His Word. So as we start, we look at this verse in verse 5, it says, casting down arguments. And I want to take a moment to give some introduction to this. Now, you've heard uh, already that I have how many kids? Eight. And their age range? Yeah, 25, 25 down to six years of age. Now, what that means is when I play with my six-year-old, young, my, my little guy, my boy, I often get the, the phrase or the statement, are you enjoying your grandson? And I don't appreciate it. <laughs> uh, I had that happen at a restaurant. Uh, my wife and I were sitting with our daughter who was having a birthday. We had our, our little, his name's Joseph, we call him little Joe or Jojo or Joe Bop or whatever. So uh, we had him with us and the waitress said, oh, are you enjoying your grandson? <laughs> yeah, there goes your tip. Um, um, <laughs> But my six-year-old does what six-year-olds do. You know, he's a little guy, and uh, he, he's got his brother. So it goes girl, girl, boy, girls, and then there's a six-year gap, and Joseph. Okay, so now Joseph is now six years of age. Uh, his sister older than him is 12. But Joe has inherited all of his brother, who's 20. He's inherited all of his what? well, toys and Legos, but he has an airsoft gun. And an airsoft gun, he's got this airsoft gun. He loves to shoot his airsoft gun. And, and he has for ammunition these little white pellets. And he shoots these little white biodegradable pellets in our backyard. And it was in the uh, fall that I was out working in the garden. 
and uh, I was actually working in a raised flower box, and I, I saw uh, some of Joe's ammunition in the garden. And so I, I reached down, and I, I thought, well, I'll pick up this white pellet, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a skinflint and save all the money and let him shoot it again, right? So I pick up this white pellet. To my surprise, it was not an airsoft pellet. Did you know that there are spiders that have white egg sacs? So I reached down and I picked up that white pellet slash spider egg sac. And when I picked it up, I still thought it was an airsoft pellet until the mother spider still attached to it went like that on my finger. Now, I did not know that I could scream like a Cinderella princess. <laughs> and I'm not going to admit that I did. But I had a living illustration of 2 Corinthians 10.5 on what it means to cast down. So, when I picked that up and I felt all eight legs wringle around my finger, are you with me? Are you feeling it? Some of you want to leave right now, I know. I threw that down with violence. So much violence that I wanted to make sure that it was still not attached to my person. And then I, to make sure, pulled my finger back to my face to go, to make sure it wasn't there. Casting down in verse 5 has sometimes, it's used in context elsewhere, it's used the idea of taking Christ down, laying down off of the cross. But it also is translated, particularly in Revelation, other passages, it's translated with the idea of casting down to destruction. It's the idea to throw down with violence. And so that's the context of what we see in 2 Corinthians 10.5 is that we're to cast down, and the word here, arguments, is a rich word. You find it translated elsewhere as imaginations and appropriately slow because arguments, imaginations, basically entails everything that you can dream up. And what I want to say is that there are ideas that need to be cast down. Are you with me with this? Every thought is not a good thought. Hello, right? Every thought is not a good thought. Some thoughts are good. Coffee in the morning is a good thing. And all God's people said, come on, be with me. <laughs> but some thoughts are not a good thought. Now, I don't, I don't know, and I, don't, I, don't, I hope I don't step on anybody's toes here, but I, I heard a testimony today of what somebody did around this time of year in this church. And I heard that, and I thought, that's one of those thoughts that needs to be cast down. And it was somebody who made broccoli and dipped it in chocolate. <laughs> and I know that chocolate can make things better, but there's a line somewhere. <laughs> and I'm just saying in my life, there's a line right there. So every thought is not a good thought. And there are thoughts that need to be thrown down. Are you with me? There are thoughts that need to be thrown down. Now, casting down arguments 
In this, there are two aspects of what need to be cast down. Arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So we're going to take a moment. What gets cast down? Well, let's talk about these arguments for a moment. Take your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, to which we will be in just a moment. Again, the definition of argument, translated elsewhere as imaginations, alternatively, is what's happening in your mind. And I want to ask you something. Do you have thoughts come to your mind that you should not have? And what do you do with those? Now, I'm going to tell you there's a part two to this message, and the part two to this message is tonight, where we'll get very personable or personal about this. But the thoughts that cross our mind need to be screened under the banner of this passage. And mankind has been living under the banner of all kind of thoughts that are, are outside of God. And just because somebody thinks something doesn't make it so. And it's just because somebody wants to believe something doesn't make it so. Now, I want to be careful here this morning, and we're going to see that that's true of those that don't know the Lord. I want you to be careful as a young person or an adult in this room this morning to know that this isn't just something that's to be applied to the lost. It's applied to the heart of the believer that every thought you have isn't a good thought. And your thoughts need to be handled in a way that glorifies God. And I hope in worshiping Him in spirit and truth this morning that that's your heart attitude. And I can't give that to you. You have to make that decision this morning. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verses 18 through 20, it says, Let no one deceive himself. If any among you seem to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own, what? Craftiness. Now, when it says he catches the wise in their own craftiness, it is the idea of someone who is trying to be wise and willing to twist things to be so. That's what craftiness involves. It's someone who actually knows better but doesn't want it. And so they get really crafty in how they frame their arguments because there's a, an agenda behind it. Verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile or vanity or vain. Take your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, we read of that same kind of thought or mentality of the world that does not want to be brought under subjection of Christ and thinks that their way might be better than God's way. And I certainly don't want to follow God. I want to do what I want to do. And so I'll dream up my own worldview. I'll dream up what I want to life to be, and how I want to envision it, and that's how I'm going to frame my life. So in verse 18 of Romans 1, for the wrath of God, in other words, the dispositional and positional reaction of God to a mindset that refuses Him equates itself in the exhibited wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I love the word suppress there because it is, it is 
taking the truth and pushing it down. It is pushing it away. It's like holding it under, under water. Get it away from me. They hold the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are what? Next two words. What are they? Stay with me. I'm, I, look, I got to know you're with me, so uh, I, otherwise I feel very alone up here. So, all right, so what does it say they are? You got your Bible? Clearly seen. All right, just a little time out here. I'm going to tell you that whenever I talk to someone who's not saved and they want to claim to be an atheist or claim to be an agnostic, they, that may be their position, but I know better. I know that they know that there's a God, and I'm going to tell you, I will listen to them, I'll respectfully hear what they've got to say, but I already know that they know there's a God. And I already know that they're suppressing that truth. And not only do they know He's there, but it's clearly seen. As we go on in verse 20, being understood as well. So not just seen, but understood by the things that are made, even what? His eternal power and Godhead. And so you have the natural result so that they are what? Without excuse. No one's going to be able to stand before God and say, but I didn't get it. I didn't really know that you were there. I didn't really have enough evidence. Now, you will hear people make those arguments, but that is working in craftiness. It's trying to wriggle out of the truth. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile, vain, empty in their thoughts. And I'm going to remind you of the previous passage, professing themselves to be wise, their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. Now, by the way, tactically as a preacher, I, I have you engage with me in the Word of God, and I ask you these questions about what does the Word say, that, so you stay anchored in the Word of God. So you're not just hearing me preach, you're seeing it from the Word of God. So their foolish heart was darkened, and this is foolishness. Have you ever seen anyone do something that was foolish? Have you ever seen one do something and you thought, now what in the world were you thinking? Every year there are videos that come out in Yellowstone where people get out of their vehicles and they think they can go stand next to uh, some buffalo or some elk and think that it's going to be like a lap dog. And, and, and why do they put those videos on YouTube and have millions of views? Because we look at the foolishness of others and it makes us laugh, <laughs> even sometimes when it causes them pain. And here's what happens when you see that kind of thing go on. In your mind, you say, what were… Now, who gets asked that question? Who gets asked that question the most? Well, in my house, that's the question we ask our six-year-old. <laughs> what were you thinking? And the response? Parents, what is the response? Three words. I don't know. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. That is genuine and real. (laughs) 
He doesn't know, doesn't know why, he just did. All right, so he just did what he did, and sometimes you can see it right in his eyes. I have no idea what just happened. Now, what's worse is to do it again, <laughs> right? So, this is the disposition. Their, their foolish heart was darkened because they made a decision. Now, I am telling you that this mindlessness is actually uh, not the intent of this passage. It's not mindlessness. It's a purposeful mindfulness to not be obedient to Jesus. And the world has been living in that context. And I, I've memorized this verse. It's been uh, hugely um, effective. When I say effective in my life, I mean it has, it has been transformative in my life spiritually medicinal to my life, and certainly not perfect, but God has helped me with this verse in my life to know how to deal with my thoughts. But I want to, I, I divided this message up back home into the battle without and the battle within. And truly in context, the meat of the context is really the battle without, those that are against God, anti-God, and the musings that they have to try to defeat the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. And that's where we come to this bringing captive. There were two things, bringing imaginations, and it goes on in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. These things have to be brought captive. Well, what are these, these high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God? Well, let's, let's just quickly break that down. Every high thing is whatever position a person has. Can you think of anybody in the Bible that ever stood against God? Can you think of people that were in great authority that positionally stood against God? Go back to the earliest references, and one of the common references that you would come to is Pharaoh where Moses said from the Word of God, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh responds, who is God? I don't know him. No. I've got all the authority on the planet I want to have, can have. And if I want, people can die. If I want, they can live. If I want something built, I can have it built. If I want something done, I can have it done. I've got all the authority. But who is this God? And, and even further, not only who is He, but I am not going to do what God says to do. So that's the every high thing, and that's been historically true. Whatever position a person has in authority, uh, there are those that are standing against God. But every thought has the idea of those that are in high position, uh, those that would use their influence. We are to bring every thought captive, every, every argument captive, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So let's take a moment and break down that phrase, uh, against the knowledge of God. Against the knowledge of God has a specific application, but a little broader application, which both are true. The knowledge of God is that which He has revealed about Himself through Scripture. I would also say that which He has revealed about Himself through creation. And from the microscope to the telescope, God is more grand than any of us know. 
But we're to bring these thoughts captive, these thoughts that would be against the knowledge of God. So, it's the thought that God is not who He said He is. God is not like what He said He is. God does not do what He says He uh, does. God does not work in the way that He says He works. It's anything that will align the character of God as He's revealed Himself. More broadly, and I think appropriate to this passage as well, is that which God has given to be known. In other words, truth that comes from God. Now, where do you get truth about God? You're holding it right there in your hands. And so, there are, there are things that need to be brought into captivity, and those things, again, reading for us back in verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, what would those things be? Well, man in his arrogance seeks to deny and stump God at every turn. Philosophically, there's always been these arguments uh, somehow maligning the character of God uh, with questions that are stumpers. Can God, can God make a rock that is too big for Him to lift? And what's, what's the intent? Well, if, if He can't make that rock that's too big for Him to lift, then He's not all-powerful. And if He can make something that's too big for Him, then He's still not all-powerful. So, it's, it's this idea of, of boxing God into some kind of a question that can't be answered that distorts our view of God. And the answer to that is God can't do anything against His character. He is still all-supreme, all-holy, almighty God. But from the Garden of Eden with Satan, who gave the words, hath God said, to evolution, to existentialism, to humanism, to postmodernism, all these thoughts are thoughts of men that want to wriggle themselves away from the authority of God. By the way, Wriggle is a Greek word used with six-year-old boys, okay? So anyway, there it is. Um, it's the idea of get me out from under the authority of God. And postmodernism today is really just the idea that everybody has the truth that you want it to be. So replete is that idea that you are having these thoughts and these ideas come to you from all manner of authority in society. So much so, and I know that you hear this, I'm sure, all the time, but it's stage front. So much so that we are so insane with trying to resist God, that we're dreaming up all kinds of genders to say that uh, there are not just two genders that God has made. But no matter what man does wriggling under that authority, there are still two genders that God has made. And all the world may want to fight against it. It does not change the truth of God's Word. And listen, Christians are dealing with this, and I'm telling you that Christians are many times compromising on the truth of God's Word. And living under the authority of what man has said. And I want to ask you, what is man that you should believe him? Just look at history, at mankind, and what tells you that man has got to figure it out? I'm going to tell you that the generation that we're living in looks to me like one of the craziest generations we've ever seen. I think often we can look back in history, and I think every generation does this. You look back in history, you look back at your forefathers, and you go, what were you thinking? 
The problem is I think we see that stage front today. It's all around us. And the idea is that I can do what I want to do because I want to do it. Take your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So there are those that say, you know what, you can get to heaven any way you want to get there. We're all on the same journey. We're all on the same path. We're all going to get there eventually, and there's all kind of doctrinal sets from different religions that will teach you so. The problem with it is what God has said. Now, you know the verse, and I, I know it from memorizing it as a teenager, John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father, three words, but by me. So, under the authority of Scripture, no one is going to get to heaven without Jesus Christ. No one's going to get to heaven without making a personal decision to place your faith in that Christ. Now, it doesn't matter that everyone in the world stands against you or says, I think there's this way or I think this way or I think I'm going to come back as a butterfly. You can dream up anything you want to dream up. There is an authority, there is a God, and the God who loves us tells us there is a truth, and a truth that we need to know. And to know Him, we have to submit to His truth. And in His benevolence and in His kindness, He tells you that He is there. He gives you evidence that He is there. Again, there is nowhere that you can look on this planet and not see the evidence of God, and not only in His graciousness on this planet, but outside of this planet, God has given not just the evidence, but the deed detailed evidence of what He's done. The revelation of His bigness and His character. And all those things bring God glory, but when they come back to us and think about that big God loving me enough to show me the truth tells you the benevolence of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21, for those that would say, I don't want the message of the gospel. For the message of the cross is what? Foolishness to who though? To those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the what? Power of God. Why is it the power of God? Now, this isn't the purpose of the message this morning, but the power of the gospel is how holy God saves sinners. And rightfully allows those who are outside of Him to come to Him and be with Him forever. How does God do that? It is His power in the gospel. It is written, verse 19, what will He do to the wisdom of the wise? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through Him did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness, thank you Lord for this verse, for the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What we're doing right now and what you're doing right now is foolishness to the world. 
You're sitting under the message of the Word of God. You're not sitting under the message of the authority of a, of a preacher or a pastor. The only authority that a pastor really has is based on the commitment they have to the truth of God's Word. And I stand, and I have to tell you, this is why I enjoy being a preacher. I, I, in my life, I get to stand on solid ground of the doctrine of God's Word. And thank God for His rescuing me as a lost teenager. Thank God for His saving my soul and, and not only redeeming me, but being the hope of my life and my future, but not just my future, but my present joy. My consolation, my redeemer, my high tower, my help, my comforter, the grace of God given to me. based on his character and his goodness. And that's what he offers to everybody in this room. But to receive it, you have to reject the thoughts of this world and you have to reject your own disposition that would rebel against the authority of God. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24 Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. Now, our time is done. And we really have only set the stage. And really, you men that were at the retreat, we talked about kind of a, a boot camp of spiritual warfare. And all of this is really building to the next message, which I think is probably the most impacting applicational message that I would give in the four times that I've had to speak. I know there's a lot going on in your lives, and I know that you have responsibilities, but I don't want you to miss what's going to be said tonight, but here's, here's the bottom line. We'll come back and unpack it more later. But every thought, both from that which is without, from the world, and that which is going on in your own mind, has a target under this passage. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And what that means is bringing your thoughts by the scruff of the neck. It's, uh, I'm not sure, and forgive me for the length of this illustration, I'm not sure that the animal that I'm going to describe for you should truly qualify as a dog. But when I was a young married person, I had a Pomeranian. It, it, it's got to be in Chihuahua, Pomeranian. The only glory they have is that they're not a cat. And I'm, I'm going to say amen, but there it is. I mean, there it is. Okay. But that, that Pomeranian had an, 
so much bravado behind the door. And there were times when the postman would ring the doorbell and he would go off like he was a Doberman pincher with a soprano voice, you know. Uh, but once in a while, I'd be on my way to church, and I don't know if any of you have ever had this, you've got animals. At the most inopportune times, that dog, I would open the door, I didn't pay attention, didn't see him, and he would jet out that door. And now he was free. And I had to get to church. I was a choir director. I had Sunday school to teach. And I've got to go minister to the dog. And eventually there'd be a time where I'd be yelling at the dog to come here. And, I, and, and by the way, I know that doesn't work. So you can't yell. You can't. You got to be, come here. Come here. They know you're lying. They know. <laughs> and eventually, eventually he would start doing circles on the ground about 30 yards from me and lay on his back and then come a little bit closer in circles and lay on his back. And I would be using my nice voice, but when I finally reached the demon, um, the dog, <laughs> when I finally reached it, I would grab it by the scruff of the neck. And with authority and with purpose, bring the blessing inside. And I, with authority, with decisions I have made, I went and grabbed that dog and I brought him and made him obey. <sighs> Easier done if it's not a Doberman pitcher or a German shepherd or a Great Dane. You and I have the same responsibility with what's going on in our minds. Every thought you have is not a good thought. And I'm telling you that many Christians have ex given excuse after excuse for why it's okay to think the way I do in rebellion against God on areas that maybe nobody else sees, but it manifests in your disposition and manifest in your walk with God. And I am telling you, you don't have to live broken. God has hope for you. God has an answer for you. And God's way is better than any way that you could imagine. But your thoughts have to be brought to obedience. There has to come a time where you recognize the way I'm thinking is not of God. And part of what I do with the men's retreat is try to help them begin to understand the sensitivity that they need with the Lord through the Spirit to begin to hear the Spirit minister to their thoughts. We'll come back to the night, that tonight. It's an important message, but I want to end with this this morning. You make decisions about the way you think. And God is the rescuer of all that would deceive you that is outside of God. All those thoughts and all those philosophies and all those doctrines that men make up and all those doctrinal swells that people would use to divide the church and separate the church. And how do you know what's true? The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. But you've got decisions to make. 
And it's high time God's people surrender to the authority of God and stop playing church. There are churches that are dying today because people will not submit their thoughts to Jesus. There are church doors that are closing today because they will doctrinally not be under, brought under the authority of anybody. They won't have a pastor. They won't let somebody come in and minister to them because they want to hang on to the authority of the church. Why? What glory is there in that? God will snuff a church like that right out. Why? That is not the, the church does not exist to raise names other than the name of Jesus Christ. But what happens is people say, I love you, Lord, and I love you, Jesus. And we sing, be thou my vision. We sing how much we love the Lord. And yet we can walk on one side of the church, avoiding the other side of the church, because I don't like that person over there for this reason, for that reason, and justify it. And it is still naked disobedience. The sweetness of God's kindness is He knows the struggle we have. He knows the tangled mess of our mind. And He invites us, submit your thoughts to me. Bring them to obedience to me. And I'm just going to paraphrase this pastorally. I want to say that God will give you health and hope spiritually as you wage this war. So you do not have to continue to be defeated in your Christian life. You do not have to continue to live your life in depression and lack of hope because God is a God of hope and He has truth that will meet you where you are. So will you worship Him in spirit and in truth? Let's pray.